Geneva, April 2006 In the palatial Belle Epoque royal suite of Geneva's Hotel de Bergs, the tall, skeletal man met with his board at its urging. The twelve members were deeply concerned, for in the course of the organization's systematic raids on seed banks, zoos, and game preserves, innocent people were getting killed. It struck these good souls that the methods employed in securing the genetic material for their vast, clandestine facility might be at odds with their humanistic goals. The tall man, smoothing his collar-length black hair as he studied each of them with ravening, hooded eyes, listened to their concerns like a great predator listens to the wind. How sadly ironic it is that innocents perish even as we attempt to bank as many life forms as possible for the post-apocalyptic world, he finally said in a satiny baritone. Rest assured that our agents will, in the future, exercise more restraint. There wasn't a fool among them. Each was at the top of his or her profession and had contributed immeasurable expertise in the realization of the spectral man's subterranean metropolis. Yet such was his wealth, power, and charisma that any reservations they had entertained now lay gashed, bleeding, and gaping for life. After they'd left, he stood alone in the drizzle of his private terrace, smiling to himself as he looked out over Lake Leman, with its blue nighttime illumination. Europe's tallest fountain looked like a giant icicle. It reminded him of home. Beyond the shimmering reflections of the old town's lights in the tranquil waters, he could make out the spire of St. Pierre, the 700-year-old Catholic church that had become a Protestant cathedral in 1536, and in which John Calvin had subsequently preached for 28 years. He smiled again. Gone were the days when the stewardship of planet Earth could, in even the smallest part, be entrusted to God. Others would have to take his place. Savo National Park, Kenya, April 2006. He was the undisputed lord of the savannah, as implacably ferocious and cunning in his ways as he was immodest in his proportions, due in no small part to his treatment of hyenas, the Maasai, who'd strayed east over the Great Rift Valley during the droughts to graze their herds, had named him I. Arishoni, the destroyer of life. Whether from boredom or simple hatred, he regularly savaged hyenas and almost always decapitated them. On this particularly torrid day, two khaki-clad park rangers from the Akambe tribe drew their rickety land cruiser up to a gnarled old giant of a baobab tree, disembarked, and prepared their lunches. The I. Arashoni pride was lolling about in an acacia grove barely a quarter of a mile away. To dare to be in the presence of such menace reflected well upon the spirit. But there was more menace about them than they could have imagined, and in no time at all their spirits had been mercilessly extinguished in a hail of machine-gun fire. Three trucks then charged the lion pride at high speed and felled the great beast with several darts. The two most aggressive females were similarly brought down while the rest of the pride was either shot dead or scattered like burnt leaves on the hot, desiccating wind. Kentucky, July 2006
At seventeen hands and fourteen hundred pounds, Zarathustra was a big horse. But what really made the red stallion a giant among thoroughbreds was that he'd never lost a race. Not one. Indeed, he'd just won the triple crown in unprecedented style. In each leg of that prize, he'd not only set track and world records, but had executed negative splitting. That is, in the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the lengthy Belmont Stakes, he'd run each quarter mile faster than the one before. The only other horse who'd ever achieved such a feat had been Secretariat in the 1973 Kentucky Derby. And Zarathustra had managed to shave a full two seconds off that champion's time of 1.59 and two-fifths minutes.